Hello. Really what I'm talking about is a study in forgetful reading. Uh, but there are seascapes in there. And I, I'm uh, a trustee at Jane Austen's House Museum, which is an independent museum. I just wanted to show you the plaque. Um, the museum was established 70 years ago this year. And it was set up by Thomas Edward Carpenter in memory of his son, Lieutenant Philip Carpenter, who was um, an air pilot and he was killed in action. And the museum was opened 70 years ago by the descendant of Wellington, Victor at the Battle of Waterloo. One reason Jane Austen was recommended as wartime reading given to British soldiers in the trenches in 1914-18, distributed in the 1940s to troops through Penguin's Forces Book Club, and recommended to those suffering from post-traumatic stress disorders is because it was widely assumed that nothing happens in her novels. <laughs> Austen was safe to read because she would not excite or overstimulate. Above all, she was disengaged from public events. This view became something of a critical commonplace through the 20th century. It appeared in a centenary tribute from Reginald Farrer in July 1917. Austin had died July 1817. And there he wrote, all the vast anguish of her time is non-existent to Jane Austen when once she's got pen in hand. Here lies the strength of her impregnable immortality. It's not without hope or comfort for us nowadays, in 1917, to remember that Mansfield Park appeared the year before Waterloo and Emma the year after. The same view sits at the heart of Kipling's 1924 story, The Jainites, in which soldiers reimagine their dugout in northern France as Austin's English village. It was still being repeated at the end of the century to George Steiner in After Babel, uh, a third edition came out in 1998. Miss Austen composes novels almost extraterritorial to history. Over the same period, Austen's social vision gained traction because it represented an England worth fighting for. England imagined as the timeless village clustered round the great house and the church. This vision was enshrined in the critical edition of Austen's novels, published in 1923 from OUP by two Oxford scholars, Catherine Metcalf of Somerville and R.W. Chapman. Conceived before the outbreak of war, their work continued through the war, thanks to the Army Field Post Office. Chapman, an officer in the Royal Garrison Artillery, served in 1917 in Macedonia, and in off-duty moments prepared editions of Austin sending material back to Metcalf in Oxford via the military mailbags. Establishing an accurate text of Austen's novels was a post-war act of healing, a monument to civilization restored. Yet Austen was thoroughly war-conditioned. Britain's 23-year campaign against revolutionary and Napoleonic France encompassed almost the whole of her adult life. During her lifetime, the Times established a foreign news office. Printed war correspondence brought far-flung campaigns to London, Edinburgh, and Hampshire villages. 
even as the movement of news and information homewards expose the ignorance, one of another, of each separate theatre of war. In a global war, where is the front? Home, in this case England, was the place where intelligence was funneled and whence it circulated. The domestic reader couldn't know the immediacy of war, but with official dispatches, war journalism, and an efficient postal service, she had the means to be better informed than any one individual combatant. In Austin's lifetime, some features that we recognize as modern in the second-hand, home-centered experience of war were emerging. Austin's fictions explore the effect of contemporary war on the home front. She is our first novelist of the home front. In Mansfield Park, published in 1814, her third novel, family fortunes offer a model in miniature of the nation at war. The Portsmouth naval defences are backdrop to vital parts of the action. Portsmouth was, in the 1810s, a city dedicated to war. During visits to the dockyards and walks on the city's ramparts and saluting battery, the anti-hero, Henry Crawford, makes his unsuccessful assault on the heroine Fanny Price's heart. In her next novel, Persuasion, Austin wrote a fictional study of present time as history. And in its heroine, Anne Elliot, a revolutionary intersection of a woman's private life with public events. We know Austin began writing the novel on the 8th of August, 1815, the day on which the Times newspaper carried news of Napoleon's departure for his final exile on St. Helena. But she set the action precisely one year earlier, writing in chapter one of this present time, the summer of 1814. The slight fictional time lag is significant. Written after Napoleon's final defeat at Waterloo in July 1815, its fictional events unfold before Waterloo, during the brief respite that ended abruptly with Napoleon's escape from Elba. In the summer of 1814, peace looked secure. At that time, naval officers returned from sea, among them the hero of persuasion, Captain Frederick Wentworth, who, after eight years of fighting and promotion, is a different prospect from the penniless young sailor Anne Elliot had been persuaded to reject eight years earlier. While he has spent the intervening years since they last met hazarding his life, Anne has found consolation for her diminished existence in public accounts of war, navy lists and newspapers. Will Wentworth's homecoming offer the chance to recover what was lost? The emotional tension that builds through the novel is witness to how keenly lives are balanced between loss and hope, past and future in times of war. The narrative moves from autumn to spring, hope recovers, at the same time, the far-sighted contemporary reader's slight dislocation from events ensures the understanding that, like peace, happiness is fragile and not without risk. The novel ends on a note of alarm, Sostin's phrase, alarm. Renewed conflict lies just beyond its frame. Where in Mansfield Park and Persuasion, Austin figured the national through the personal perspective on war. In Sanditon, her last novel begun in January 1817, she described a traumatized post-war society 
opening to change after decades of confinement, yet bearing conflict's mental and emotional scars. England's Channel Coast, anxiously defended in Mansfield Park against the threat of invasion. In Sanderton, only 18 months after Waterloo, is now the scene of keen resort wars and an eagerly anticipated invasion, this time of holidaymakers. Mr. Parker, who abandons his family estate to invest in the new leisure industry, is a type of modern man, dislocated by recent events and wishing to make the world anew. The mood in Sanditon is not just optimistic, it's frenetic and reckless. Among war's aftershocks is its effect on language and identity. Miss Diana Parker's post-war profiteering takes the form of officious acts of charity. Her crazy interference in other people's business is expressed in paramilitary terms. Miss Diana Parker was now regaling in the delight of opening the first trenches of an acquaintance with such a powerful discharge of unexpected obligation. The novel is filled with topical allusion. Mr. Parker's regret that his new-built house, Trafalgar House, is not named Waterloo, for Waterloo is more the thing now, invokes the contemporary praise for naming buildings after national wartime victories. London's Strand Bridge, begun in 1811, had been renamed Waterloo Bridge just one year earlier, in 1816. Even the reference to blue shoes spotted in a Sanditon shop window is not without significance. Several contemporary commentators noting the craze for blue garments in the shade known as Waterloo Blue after the dye in common use in Flanders. Within weeks of the battle, trophy hunting marked the field of Waterloo as a tourist destination. Collecting relics quickly transformed the site into something other. A recent equivalent would be the tourist onslaught following the fall of the Berlin Wall in November 1989. Almost overnight, Waterloo shifted from history into myth. Already in Sanditon, Waterloo and recent history have been commodified and packaged, remembered, that is to say, pieced together differently. 100 years on, in 1914-18, Austin's domestic negotiations with present history were conscripted to serve a narrative of English identity, becoming for that later generation a resource for surviving the pressures of renewed national alarm. Texts like other witnesses to and from the past have also a presentness. Readers discover them as new texts. As Philip Davis remarks in Reading and the Reader of 2013, literature is something going on within the outside world, and life is raw data in search of form. Through the 20th century, Austin's high reputation was tightly bound to a particular view of culture that her novels were understood to embody. As a defense against and a remembering, which is to say a forgetting of war, her novels were required to carry within them the history of this reading and to reproduce it. In reading Austin, the wartime writer, we are cleansed of war.
We're going to try this as a bit of a double act. Um, we've we've uh, not quite practiced it like that, but hopefully we can. Uh, you can hear both of us as, as we speak. Um, we're going to tell a bit of a story, a story of a, a place and the people who live there, um, and uh, and see how useful that is to this conversation. Hopefully, it will be. Um, it's a landscape which um, has changed immeasurably um, within 100 years and back again. Um, a colliery was built in Easington on the Durham coast in 1899, work started, and the first coal came to the ground um, in, uh, properly in 1910. Um, and so it, it's actually quite uh, a recent industrial landscape, and everything that was built on that clifftop um, was built there um, from uh, 1899 onwards. Um, the landscape is not one without disaster and without um, events that required memorialization. So in 1951, in, in May, 83 people were killed um, in a mine disaster, of which there is still one survivor uh, remaining who uh, has, as part of this project that we've been doing, been interviewed recently. Um, it's, it's a disaster which caused huge up, uh, 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 um, outpouring of, of emotion within that place and brought that community together in a way that hadn't really been seen before. And it's important that during disaster and crisis, uh, it's a community which does come together. The place is also celebrated in, in common culture. Um, and for those of you who know this album from the early 1970s, this is Easington Colliery on the front. Um, the Who had recently watched 2001 um, A Space Odyssey and wanted for their next uh, album cover to have a place which had an out-of-world feel. And Easington Colliery was chosen for this. Which, it, it's, it's fascinating because, again, it's a landscape which we can no longer see. And we'll come on to that later. Um, also in the early 70s, it was used as a film location. Um, the, the, the particular the picture I'm going to show you next is not actually Easington uh, Colliery Beach. It's uh, a beach about two miles away. Um, uh, but uh, many of you will recognise the, uh, recognize the film as Get Carter. Um, and you can see in this, this picture the coal waste extending down onto the beach. Um, uh, we watched this clip last night, didn't we, Kiki? And then, um, basically, the, the, um, the aerial runway you see with these large buckets, um, they are coming from the colliery with colliery waste, and they are heading down towards the sea. And as they turn the corner at the bottom, the waste is tipped out um, into the sea. In Easington, uh, the, the waste started to be tipped into the sea in 1931, and this continued into the 1980s. Um, so you can imagine a huge amount of waste. And I think it's really interesting because this particular site was not just used for its landscape, but actually its story itself. So of course, I'm sure everyone's used to Billy Elliot, which was um, uh, filmed in the 2000s. Um, and looking at that sense of pride of what community can do through that time of conflict, that actually there are still elements where people can rise from that to take inspiration from that site to be able to develop a, a better place for themselves. 
And this is something that actually the community have a weird um, relationship with. They're really proud that actually Billy Elliot was filmed in Easington, um, but yet that people don't actually truly understand the conflict that was happening at that particular time when the minor strikes were happening in um, 84. So we, we come on to the minor strike now, which is, it's 35 years ago this year that uh, the minor strike started. And many people don't know the story of it. It's quite complex. It's political. Um, Maggie Thatcher, when she became Prime Minister, um, she, she um, insisted that she was not going to be brought down by the unions and realised that at some point um, a, uh, a conflict, if you like, with the, the miners' union and other unions was going to have to happen. And the miners' strike was that conflict. Um, and it, it, it's one of those things that because it's still within living memory, I was a student, it made me radical um, at, at the time. Um, it's something which affected society um, deep into its core. Um, and it affected us all slightly differently. And those of us who went through it are still alive. And those people who live in Easington, many of them worked in the collier at that time and have specific memories about it. So the, the project that Helen talked about, um, about people's landscapes, it's the only conflict where people were still, are still alive and still have a, um, their own thoughts about it. And history is yet to decide whether the minor strike was good or bad. Maybe it never will. Um, you know, was it a good thing that the, the power of the unions was diminished? Was it a good thing that we've closed, that, that it resulted in many coal mines being closed? Who knows exactly what the good or bad to come out of the minor strike is. We've all got our own opinions. And one day, history may or may not decide. Um, it's interesting that because of what happened at Easington, um, there is a, uh, you know, it's one of the places that is used incredibly uh, for this, um, the, the sort of celebration, memorial, whichever way you look at it. Uh, so this is the National Coal Mining Museum's Teacher's Guide. And Easington Colliery is the, the place chosen um, for the cover. Um, and, and I think because of that reason, it made it quite actually a ch challenging subject matter for the National Trust to start to look at within this particular programme. And I think it's because of imagery like this, where in itself is quite challenging. Uh, Keith Patterson was around in 84 and 85 and actually documented for the whole of that year the strikes that were happening. And some of the um, imagery was actually um, staged wasn't it, to be able to kind of give that impactful um, presence. And actually now what's happened because of the significance of the documentation is, is that this body of work by both Keith and um, Isabella is now part of a UNESCO um, archive because of the images that were taken. So they're of national significance, that there are very few places that being, were being documented like this around protest and around those two different positions coming together. But even within that story, it wasn't all about conflict, that actually, again, as Jonathan mentioned at the beginning, it was a sense of communities coming together. And Isabella Zizekzi um, actually documented um, the women's side of the conflict, that it wasn't just purely about the miners going down, uh, or not going down into the mines, but um, the women actually came together and created huge kind of food banks for the local community. Um, and they were actually twinned with Greenwich down in London to be able to supply food resources to Easington itself. So it's a really interesting sense of 
different people working together from different backgrounds, different communities, to ensure that they were able to continue to uh, put their point across within this particular conflict. So, so following the, the miners' strike in the 80s, the mines continued to produce um, coal um, into the 1990s, and, and the mine finally closed uh, with the loss of almost 2,000 workers um, in 1993. Um, the loss of 2,000 workers in a village that, where nearly everybody worked within the mining industry was a huge calamity. Um, the uh, remains of that uh, mining industry uh, were left on the beaches and on the cliff tops um, for a very brief period. So the, the colliery itself was dismantled within a year by the coal board, um, or British coal as it, it was at the time, and everything, according to, according to legend within the village, was thrown down the pit in order for it never to be reopened again. Um, whether that's true or not is another matter, but that's what the, 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 mine, the ex-miners tell us. Um, and so, uh, as you look at the landscape, it was beginning to change very fast. Um, what's interesting about this picture is you can see um, somebody on a motorbike, by the looks of it, riding down onto the beach and back again. This was possible at the time because of the coal waste. So the coal waste in ensured that those who wanted to could not just walk down onto the beach as you can today, but could drive down. And many people complain that you no longer can drive down onto the beach in the way that you could. Um, they also saw this landscape clearance and, and um, improvement, if you like, the rewilding that went on as, a, um, as almost a, a, a sort of wiping clean of their history, a removal of the place that they, um, that they felt wedded to. Their culture was being swept away. They'd lost their jobs, they'd lost their livelihoods, and now the industry that they um, had been part of was being erased from, from memory and from the landscape. And I think within this, um, they weren't involved in the conversation, um, whether that's right or wrong, but it's just a fact that actually they felt as if their landscape was changing and they couldn't quite understand why. What did making good mean? What did making it more beautiful mean when this was the landscape that they had known for the previous hundred years that they had worked on from generations to generation? So the idea of it being reappropriated for reasons that they didn't quite understand was completely alien to them. When, when you look at the landscape today, it is a clean and beautiful landscape. But the people of Durham still do not visit it. They still don't think, oh, we're going to go to the beach, we'll go to Easington. Where actually, some of the beaches in that area are the best beaches you'll go to, mainly because there's nobody on them. Yeah, nobody. Um, we, we walked into the library in Easington and talked to the librarian who's... Um, father was a miner whose mother worked in the miners' welfare, who was alive during the miners' strike, um, who has lived in Easington all her life. She said, I've never been on the beach, which actually, standing outside the library, you can see the cliff top. The beach is just a drop down, but her father told her it was dangerous. Um, she never went there when the mine was open, and still doesn't, which says so much about you know, the... the the healing that needs to go on within that landscape. Um, when, 
when you go on the beach today, there are still remnants left. The way down to the beach now is down this winding set of steep steps um, that very few of the older miners um, and their, their families uh, venture. Um, there's still the remnants of mine waste, this miner's boot poignant of uh, a time past. And the little bit of leather behind it is not a huge long tongue for a boot. It's a bit of the conveyor belt, either from down in the pit um, uh, or from the, the elevator which took waste out into the sea. Today, if you stand on Easington High Street, this is a very typical scene. A shop boarded up. Over half of the shops in Easington look like this. Um, we knew that we wanted to work with Amber Collective. Um, and the reason for that is because of the images I showed you previously of Keith and Isabella, that they had been working with those communities for the last 50 years to actually document that process prior to the strike and also after the strike. They've created documentaries like It's the Pits with the youth that were growing up in the 90s during the regeneration project, the Turning the Tide project. And we want, what we knew that we needed to do was rather than erasing that history, we needed to start talking about it as a starting point, specifically around the strikes. And we went in consultation with the local community, with conversations like we had at the library, to ask them what, that they, what, what do they want? What is a conversation to them about mining heritage? What does that mean to them? And so we actually put up this pop-up exhibition using Keith and Isabella's um, images, looking at conflict and the coming together of community, and just started to open up those conversations with people. We had a series of different pop-up uh, uh, lunches with Cafe Together, um, where they deliver, actually on a Thursday, three-course meals for a pound for the community, because it's just so deprived. I think 24% of the community do not have jobs. And have never had jobs. And have never had jobs. Um, and then also during this, part of the commission with Amber is that we wanted them to create a new documentary film, actually looking, uh, working with members of the community that they documented 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and seeing how they feel about the landscape now, with the work that the National Trust have done, whether they feel differently to it, with the work that we're starting to uh, communicate with them this year through those conversations, whether they felt more connected to it, whether they felt as if we were able to talk about their history, their story, in a way that was much more emotional and connected to them as people that had, living, had been living there for, for the previous hundred years. And through those conversations, what they wanted was they wanted a celebration. This, this point, this moment in time, rather than us always thinking about the past and thinking about as this conflict, of actually mining brought people together. So what we created was the very first Easington Miners Picnic, but used it in a contemporary way by bringing together different contemporary uh, musicians, bands. Uh, we worked with local producers from Creative Youth Opportunities, who, um, Michelle, who actually grew up in Easington, and she de delivered this whole programme with young people from Easington. What I think is interesting about the Miners Band that you just saw and the... Uh, the miners' welfare is that these were services provided for by the miners themselves. So part of their wages went to the union, the union gave money to the welfare, they provided the money for the sports clubs and all of those things, which all went. So it wasn't just the loss of their livelihood, but the loss of their support network 
too. And this has been continued. What's interesting is that the, this, these new banners, the band still continues, the football still goes, it's, the football club still, still operates. It's an amazing uh, survival of those things, which they've made, they've continued because they value them uh, within the community. And so throughout the day, we had memorabilia, we had interesting conversations, we had workshops. Um, and if I'm being honest, we had no idea how many people were going to come. We were hoping 150 would come, but actually it, it was estimated that between 800 and 1,000 people came. And from some of the visitor comments, they said actually it was fantastic to see Easington's community coming back together again and feeling as if they had a purpose and pride about this tiny place on the <laughs> Uh, on the coast that I think it's previously always been um, tarnished in the press. So, so we've, we've ended up with these, this is actually Horden Beach, the next one along, um, but we've ended up with um, an amazing landscape. The, the, the National Trust owns um, just over 50% of the Durham coast, which yeah, for 50% of the, the coast of the county is amazing. Um, and the rangers who work in that, that area have spent years building a relationship with the people who live there. Um, Wayne, one of the rangers, for example, was born in, the, uh, in Easington, now lives in Horden, has been there all his life. Um, but even he, at one point, was having bricks put through his, his National Trust van um, on his drive outside his house because the National Trust was seen as an enemy. So we've been building a relationship uh, uh, to get to this point over the years. Um, when you stand in the landscape today, this is what you see where the main pit uh, used to be. This is an elevator. It's not one from Easington Colliery because none of them exist. It's one from another pit somewhere else, but it is placed in the landscape as a memorial to the mining industry. Um, and as you look out across this now beautiful landscape, um, you realise that what you're standing on is the waste from the beach that was cleared from the beach, used to create what is now a nature reserve. I think the other thing that's really interesting is up until this year, I don't know you know about our National Trust handbook, but Durham Coast wasn't in there. And this is the first year that actually we've got it in there for people to know about this beautiful landscape, for them to be able to access it um, and to be able to know about the mining heritage. And that leads us just to say that it's still a celebration um, of a past that is, that is to some glorious um, and um, the, the people who live there really do care about that place. Thank you very much.